hear me? Just coming through. Glad to have all of you here this morning, especially those of you uh, who are joining us online and from uh, Outpost Christian Church in, in Douglas and that ministry there. Um, glad to see you. Uh, my name is Bradley Erickson. I um, am filling in for uh, Charles Gwynn uh, so he could uh, go on uh, a trip with Autumn and they didn't have to stress about uh, getting back and, and him having to preach again. Um, he, he asked me to, to fill in in June, and at that time we didn't know where in Mark we would be. Right now we're going through a series called Follow the Servant, and it's a verse-by-verse verse, uh, exploration of the book of Mark. It's very excellent, and we'll, we'll continue picking that up next week. Um, so he suggested that I just uh, pick a topic myself, which is always um, a quagmire for me. Um, and I, I wrestled with it all summer um, until my wife... Uh, finally wisely suggested, why don't you just talk about what you're already studying and save yourself some time. Um, I, I like to make things more complicated, I guess. So, um, But I, I did take her advice, and this morning we'll be talking about what is man, which is the title. Um, if you're willing and able, if you would stand with me, we're going to be reading from Genesis 11, uh, starting in verse 1. The whole earth had the same language and vocabulary. As people migrated from the east, they found a valley in the land of Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let us make oven-fired bricks. They used brick for stone and asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the sky. Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered throughout the earth. Then the Lord came down to look over the city and the tower that the humans were building. The Lord said, if they have begun to do this as one people, all having the same language, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let's go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth and they stopped building the city. Therefore, it is called Babylon. For there, the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them throughout the earth. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise your name this morning. We thank you for the gift of life. We thank you for the freedom to, to gather together and worship together and to break bread with one another and to share in the riches of your kingdom. I pray this morning that you would help me speak. I pray that uh, you would help all of us that we could be bold for you and for the spreading your word. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So the story here in Genesis actually begins in chapter 10, verse 8. In the middle of the genealogy of Noah, just after the flood, the writer of Genesis takes a quick detour to describe the acts of a single individual, Nimrod. Cush fathered Nimrod, who began to be powerful in the land. He was a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a powerful hunter in the sight of the Lord. His kingdom started with Babylon, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land, he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kalah, and Resen, between Nineveh and the great city Kalah. So we find Nimrod, who founded these great cities, 
Now, some scholars, using extra-biblical sources, try to trace down other records of this man. Uh, some believe he is Gilgamesh, or Sargon of Akkad, or some other king. And maybe he is one of these mighty kings, and, and that is interesting to explore. But all we really know is the meaning of his name comes from the root Hebrew word for rebel. Nimrod is the rebel. Some sources describe him as not just a great hunter in the standard sense, but symbolically he is a hunter, a trapper of men. His tyrannical power establishes kingdoms and cities, specifically ones that later become the world empires, centers of powers, idolatries, and trouble for the kingdom of future Israel. One of these powers is Babylon, or Babel, which means confusion. And this is the beginning of Babylon, and it's the historical founding of the nation that permeates the Old Testament, especially as we read about the exile of the Hebrews centuries later. Symbolically, the spirit of Babylon is used frequently throughout Scripture, all the way to the last book of the Bible where John speaks of her in Revelation. And this spirit of idolatry and rebellion against God begins here in Genesis 11 with the building of a great city and tower. As we'll read shortly, God's command first to Adam and then to Noah is for humans to multiply and fill the earth. Instead, the people of Babylon want to avoid that scattering. They settle purposefully together to build a tower that reaches the heavens, especially with the idea to make a great name for themselves. And so as we dive this morning into what it means to be human, I chose to open with the cultural narrative of the first Babylonians. And I would like you to keep this frame in mind. This is a culture that is proud. It is by their actions that heaven is reached. They raise themselves up. Their deeds are theirs. Their name they've earned by their own power. And by this image, they call earth to themselves in rebellion. So what is the culture here in the West? Every culture has a story. It tells itself and others. Every generation contends with that cultural nar narrative for good or ill. It informs our worldviews as individuals. It shapes us. And especially in this age of media, it shapes us. Sometimes as soon as we can open our eyes or are old enough to hold a smartphone or a tablet, maybe as we sit in front of the television or listen to the radio. We in the fi West find ourselves at the dawn of a new age, a new story being told. The Enlightenment has darkened. Modernism has supplant been supplanted by postmodernism. At an incredible pace, our society is facing ideas, ideologies, values, worldviews, and a narrative that we haven't really had to wrestle with. Or maybe as all others in late-stage empire decadence, we haven't bothered to wrestle with. It's not solely the newness that makes it the subject of criticism this morning. We could just as easily direct ourselves at the supplanted narrative as this new one. All cultures of the world are in rebellion against our creator as we see in Romans 1, 18 through 32, and 1 John 5, 19. But as this narrative subsumes all of our institutions, from politics to education to the press to Hollywood and technology, we will only be increasingly confronted by this story. In addition, the latest surveys from Barna Research reveal that only 6% of Christians in the United States have a Christian worldview. 
This is a horrifying number. So as Westerners, our choice then is to embrace the postmodern narrative or reject it. And as Christians, I would like to make the case this morning that we thoroughly reject it. This is a topic, of course, that we could spend weeks or months or years discussing. But in the interest of time, I'd like to approach the postmodern narrative through two questions all worldviews attempt to answer. Who are we and what is our purpose? Firstly, who are we as human beings? Or to ask this more personally, who am I? I believe the Bible answers this question most succinctly at the very beginning in the first chapter of the first book. Now it's expanded upon throughout the rest of scripture, but we find a lot here in the origin of mankind. And this is not myth or legend, but history, though I'll lay aside that argument for another time. In Genesis 1, 26-28, we read, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on this earth. In chapter 9, we see many of these initial concepts of man here repeated to Noah after God saves him and his family from the flood. God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear and terror of you will be in every living creature on the earth, every bird in the sky, every creature that crawls on the ground, and all the fish of the sea. They are placed under your authority. Every creature that lives and moves will be food for you. As I gave the green plants, I have given you everything. However, you must not eat meat with its lifeblood in it. And I will require a penalty for your lifeblood. I will require it from any animal and from any human. If someone murders a fellow human, I will require that person's life. Whoever sheds human blood by humans, his blood will be shed, for God made humans in his image. But you, be fruitful and multiply. Spread out over the earth and multiply on it. And finally, in Romans 3.23, we find one of the most succinct verses about the state of man. And many of you probably have this memorized from childhood if you grew up in the church, but it's, it's pretty short. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Straightforward. These and related verses are the foundation of the Christian worldview of the doctrine of man. Here we find our origin, our status, our nature, our purpose, how we relate to one another, our accountability, and more. And I'd like to quickly contrast these with the values or towers the narrative of Western society is currently building. Let's begin with the nature of origin. Materialist scientists are lined up to inform you that you are stardust or monkeys or just nearly empty masses of atoms. We ignore them telling men that they are any of these things creates a host of problems. What obligations do stardust or monkeys or atoms have? What ethical bounds contain them? The determinists go one step further and infer that because we are just a series of cause and effect events, atoms smashing around since the beginning of time, we actually have no choice in our decisions and actions anyway. 
On the contrary, Scripture tells us that man is made in the image of God. We are created beings. We have a creator who made us for his purposes. This also means we are obligated to our creator. As his image bearers, we have a responsibility. There is a should, an objective moral standard we are supposed to carry out. Our cutting-edge bioengineers disagree. They seek to supplant this obligation with the idol of a Nietzschean Ubermensch, an immortal man-god who will surpass the rest of mankind through a combination of cybernetics and genetic manipulation. And I know that sounds like an idle speculation of science fiction, but these are the real objectives of companies and nation states in our world today. Artificial intelligence researchers desire to fashion their own graven image in the form of a singularity, a supercomputer intelligence that will one day rule mankind. It might destroy us, or it might not. They're not quite sure on that point, but it's worth pursuing anyway, apparently. When we're speaking of science, we've gone and made a god of scientism. I'm not sure that you can currently watch the news or read it online without hearing about the science. Remember, you can only follow the science since questioning it would be heretical to the core tenets of the religion. We've continued to suppress the existence of the supernatural unless you keep it out of the public sphere and in your private, non-judgmental personal space. In addition to empiricism and positivism, we worship at the altar of rationality, built by our Enlightenment forefathers instead of the logic or logos that spoke the world into existence. Even this idolatry is just lip service, however, as we'll happily lay rationality aside for the rule of personal passions and feelings. On this front, I'm happy to report we excel. Facebook now offers a list of 58 gender options for its users so that they can now select a custom gender option including gender fluid, androgynous, two-spirit, pan-gender, fey-gender, and neutral. Not only has gender been recategorized as a social construct, but even biological sex is on the topping box. Doctors and college instructors are rebuked by pupils, patients, peers, boards, administrators, and the media for saying the words male and female. Medical schools now police transphobic terminology. As early as preschool, teachers have begun instructing their classes in navigating the myriad of gender pronouns, statuses, and sexual labels. Today, women don't get pregnant, people do. Those children allowed to be born are served up to this biological, uh, diabolical engine. Treating adolescents with hormones and surgeries that often cause lifelong debilitating injuries. As detransitions rise in countries further along this track, especially in statistically significant youth cohorts, our zeitgeist ignores the damage caused and runs further down the slope. All of this in contrast to Genesis. So God created man in his own image. He created in the image of God. He created them male and female. We can't foresee all the long-term confusion and damage holding tight to this gender ideology brings, but in the short term, it's already having a devastating impact on individuals and society. And while we play with all these ideas, the relationships between the genders have also imploded. The seeds of the sexual revolution have come to full fruition. The children of the divorced generation are grown and have children and grandchildren of their own. Divorce is now... Now, not only rampant, but we are living as if we are already divorced. 
Premarital sex and cohabitation are the norm, the standard, and nothing is off the table as far as sexuality goes. Pursue your passions. Homosexuality, polygamy, polyamory, and orgies, orgies are encouraged, lauded, paraded, and idolized. Even pedophilia is openly defended. Ethical porn for children is being discussed and designed while schools struggle with policing middle schoolers who film themselves during sexual acts on campus to post to their social networks. In contrast to all of this, Jesus reiterates the original tension of the relationship between men and women in Matthew 19. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he departed from Galilee and went to the region of Judea across the Jordan. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees approached him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife on any grounds? Haven't you read, he replied, that he who created them in the beginning made them male and female. And he also said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. There's so many other towers we could examine if time permitted. Moralistic therapeutic deism, critical race theory, pluralism, abortion, infanticide, school shootings, witchcraft, paganism, nuclear families, workaholism, authoritarianism, legalism, technocracy, and totalitarianism. So much deeper we could go. Our society has filled the bingo card of getting this wrong. And it doesn't look like we are stopping anytime soon. We debase ourselves, our bodies, and one another. We seek only to corrupt the image. We're seeding confusion at every level of society, and we are beginning to reap the fruits of that labor. Which brings me to the second question I mentioned earlier. What is our purpose? Again, maybe you've asked yourself this question, what is my purpose? Why am I here? Why am I alive? I believe this answer logically flows from the answers to the previous question. If we really are just mere accidents of the cosmos, we are therefore purposeless. If we sow confusion and lies, that is what we will reap. And we can already see this playing out. Even secular intellectuals in our society are trying to tackle this challenge. If you follow the likes of Jordan Peterson or John Verveke, you've heard about the meaning crisis that plagues our society. Men and women and youth are struggling not only with identity, but also purpose. What is the meaning of life? And the stakes are not just lingering in the liminalities in education, careers, relationships, and families, but even the life of individuals as well. As our elites imposed a new stoichetic order on society this past year, an estimated 44,834 persons committed suicide, according to the CDC. Military suicides went up by 16%. Suicide attempts among teen girls increased 51%. Psychiatric-related hospital visits increased in youth by 31%. Do we really offer nihilism, an emptiness of purpose, and expect people to be satisfied? Do we offer meaninglessness and expect fulfillment? Among the most prevalent solutions on offer is pride itself. Make your own meaning. Make your own way. 
is that all we really have to offer? Is that the best we as a culture can do? For these people wrestling with real pain, isolation, depression, addiction, sin, and abuse, these people that are struggling with identity and meaning, we tell them to just go find their own? It's such a flippant, disgusting, deceitful, idolatrous attitude. Is this an image bearer living by lies? No, to be an image bearer is to reflect the image of the original. It's a representative role, a purpose. In ancient times, whoever bore the signet ring of the king spoke and acted on behalf of the king. Can people created to be representatives find true meaning in living a corrupted image? If you reflect only yourself, are you re representing the king? Is a broken and dirty and warped mirror going to reflect the true image of God? And what if we Christians, what happens when instead of bearing the image and name of Jesus, we carry the narrative of the world instead? We bear our culture instead of Christ. Read with me from 2 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. We all, with unveiled faces, are looking as in a mirror at the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. This is from the Lord who is the Spirit. Therefore, since we have this ministry, because we were shown mercy, we do not give up. Instead, we have renounced secret and shameful things, not acting deceitfully or distorting the word of God, but commending ourselves before God to everyone's conscience by an open display of the truth. But if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. When we capitulate to the cultural narrative, when we help erect the tower, we bear or take the name and image of our Lord in vain. In his political essay, Live Not By Lies, Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote before his exile from the Soviet Union in 1974, our way must be never knowingly support lies. Having understand where the lies begin, and many see this line differently, step back from that grand gangrenous edge. Let us not glue back the flaking scales of the ideology, not gather back its crumbling bones, nor patch together its decomposing garb, and we will be amazed how swiftly and helplessly the lies will fall away, and that which is destined to be naked will be exposed as such to the world. And thus, overcoming our temerity, let each man choose. Will he remain a witting servant of the lies? Needless to say, not due to natural predisposition, but in order to provide a living for the family to rear the children in the spirit of lies. Or has the time come for him to stand straight as an honest man, worthy of the respect of his children and contemporaries? Paul exhorts us in this way in Colossians 3.9, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self. You are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. You see, the, in, the Christian narrative offers something different. It offers life as true image bearers once again. It offers purpose. At its core is not the towers of religion 
or self-love or pluralism. It is not man reaching up to the heavens, building his tower to steal the throne of God. It is not the ubermensch, the superman, the man-god. Instead, it is God reaching down to man. It is the love of a creator for the creator created. The logos, the master of heaven and earth, humbling himself, taking human form, the form of a servant, submitting himself to death on a cross. Doing so, he redeems creation. He conquers his enemies, and God makes them a footstool so that the image of God might be reflected once more. First, through the perfect son, and finally, through us as adopted children. To close out, I'm going to be reading 2 Corinthians 5, starting verse 11. Therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. From now on, when we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective, even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no lo longer know him in this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and see the new has come. Everything is from God who has recon reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he was committed to the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God make his, is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Brothers and sisters, those of us who are Christians today, I urge you, live not by lies. This world is chewing people up and spitting them out. Is wreaking havoc. And we've been tasked with a mission, a purpose, to plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Let's not drop the ball. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come before you today. We ask that you Bless us this week. I pray you'll be with our revival. Give strength to the speaker. Help us learn. Help us learn to be bold. Help us learn to confront the wickedness in this world. Help us to speak out to those who call evil good and good evil. I pray that we can be a light to them, that we can reflect your image into this world.